If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open them up. We are in John chapter 17, as uh, Susan was sharing with our kids, um, how this is just a favorite passage of hers. It is an incredibly favorite passage of mine. Um, Verse 3, we'll get to that in a second, but I, I don't know literally how many times in my life in ministry it's has to be in the thousands, how many times I've literally quoted this verse. Um, And it it is just so um, not only powerful, um, but hopefully eye-opening for all of us. Anyhow, this is, um, um, a lot of times people talk to the Lord's Prayer is the one that he gave, which was actually a model prayer Uh, As Susan was sharing, in some of your Bibles, you'll have titles. Uh, This is the high priestly prayer. Literally, this really is the Lord's Prayer. This is one whole prayer that we have that's written down for us uh, that Yeshua prayed to the Father, um, and it is incredibly powerful. Uh, So we're going to try to march through this. We'll see if I can cover the whole chapter tonight, at least that's the plan, but we'll see what happens. So starting with verse one, it says, Yeshua said these words and he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Esteem your son so that your son also might esteem you. Now, before we go any farther and we read this, I want you to uh, pay attention to something throughout this prayer. I put it, literally wrote out this note for you there on your notes. Um, What I wrote was, as we start our discussion on this all-important text, notice the focal point of Yeshua in this prayer. Everything that follows flows from this one main desire, quote, so that your son also might esteem or glorify you. Literally, all that follows in this prayer is founded on this one desire, everything. Folks, this is why, once again, it is critically important to read our Bibles in what? You read it in context. And we have to stop kind of cherry-picking and taking a little sound bite out of Scripture. Oh, that'll preach, and that's a good memory verse. We need to really keep everything in context uh, so that it, we can understand what it's saying. So right here, Jesus says, the hour has come now. Heavenly Father, here's what I want you to do. I want you to glorify me so that... I can glorify you. The whole <clears throat> We're going to get into this in just a second about eternal life, salvation. Aren't we thankful for that? Hallelujah. Yet, I propose that no one here in this room totally comprehends that concept. Um, we, we are banking eternity on it, yet uh, it is so far beyond 
what our typical minds think of when we think of salvation. Salvation, heaven and hell, and, and all that stuff. <clears throat> what I want you to see here is that even when he's talking about salvation and literally the whole ministry of Christ coming, we I'm probably getting ahead of myself a little bit here, but we have a tendency to think, and we go back to, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And we have a tendency to think that Jesus came to earth to die on the cross to purchase our salvation. While that is true, that was not the foundation motivational factor in him coming. The motivational factor in Yeshua coming, dying on the cross to purchase our salvation was in order to glorify the Father. That's the end purpose was to glorify the Father. Now, if that can start to sink in, folks, it's a game changer. We have a tendency to think, I'm just gonna, I just need to make it through this life so I can get into heaven. Which is the wrong mindset. It's just the wrong mindset. We have a tendency of thinking that that's what we're gonna get, that's where I'm gonna be, that's where I'm gonna live, and I'm gonna be able to live forever. We are going to live forever. The question is with whom? And it's not where. Let me propose something really outlandish. If you had the, uh, the ability to go to heaven and live forever in heaven, but Jesus not being there, it would be hell. In all of its glory, all of its splendor, walking on streets of gold, the new heaven, the new earth, all that stuff. But if God is not there, if Yeshua is not there, then it's actually hell. It's actually a sentence of damnation. It's not what it's going to look like where you're living. It's with whom? That, that's the ultimate deal. So then I want you to see something. Let, let's, let's march on here. So he says that the hour has come, and I want, what I want you to do, Father, is I want you to glorify me so that I can glorify you. And then look what he says. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give everlasting life to all whom you have given him. Now he's talking like in third person about himself. But what he's saying is that, Heavenly Father, you've given me all authority, and you've given me the authority to give any person I want to to have everlasting life. But, he says, the only ones he can really do that to, or for, are the ones that the Father already gave him. I know this can kind of really mess with our minds because we get really caught up on the idea that we have a free will and we can choose whatever we want to choose. And I do believe that we have free will. But the bottom line is you can't get saved unless God calls you. Impossible. Right here he says that he can give everlasting life to all that you gave me. 
So if you've been given to Jesus by the Father, you're going to get salvation. Because even in our stubbornness, even in our rebellion, God says, I love you so much, I'm just going to come and get you. But here's what you need to understand also with that. He's not coming to get us just because he loves us. He's coming to get us because he loves us, but the goal is so that he's glorified as the one true God. We have this tendency to think that, you know, there was this war in heaven and Satan got jealous and he messed up God's toys and God got jealous and he said, I want my toys back, but the only way I can get my toys back is if I become a toy and pay the price for the toy so I can get my toys back. Isn't that kind of what we've always heard? That wasn't it at all. God knew all this before he created everything. You think he was surprised when Lucifer rebelled? He's outside of time and space, so that, that didn't surprise him. He knew all of this before he created the physical realm. And when he did all that, he was going to do it to glorify himself, allowing free will, even among the angels and among human beings, but through that whole process, proved to everything that he was creating, I'm God, and in Texan, there ain't nobody like me. Ever. So <clears throat> Jesus, it says here that he has the power to give everlasting life. And then here's what I love about the word of God. Now Jesus is going to explain that to us. And he goes, and this is everlasting life that they should know you, the only true God. I mean, how many times do we need to see this in Scripture to try to figure out that this is a main focal point in this grand story of what's been going on? Eternal life is knowing the creator of the universe and knowing that he is the only true God above all gods, and Yeshua, the Messiah, whom you have sent. Eternal life is an intimate relationship with the creator of the universe. That is eternal life. Your eternal life is not founded in heaven. Your eternal life doesn't start when you die. Your eternal life, union with the creator of the universe, starts when you accept the fact that Yeshua is the one true Messiah that God sent and he came from the creator of the universe and there's only one God and one way to that creator. And you accept that and you move into this personal relationship with him. Based on that, where is there any room for any kind of pride? Zero. Zero. Based on that, if we can really make that uh, a foundational truth, if you will, Something that we really hold on to and go, I'm not going to let go of that because that, well, that's what Scripture says. That's what Jesus said. So it's got to be true, right? I mean, after all, it's in your Bible in red. 
So, I mean, that's, you know, better than the, <laughs> no, it's not, but that it's something that we should really believe in. Well, Jesus tells us that eternal life is knowing the one true God and knowing him. Well, once you come into that relationship with him, then here's the question. So has your eternal life started or are you still waiting on it? It's already started. How much can that change your perception on who you are and what's going on if you realize that your eternal life has already started? And if that's the case, then why should you or I or anybody we know that's a believer be afraid or fearful of death? What does that even mean? That's why the scripture says, oh, death, where's your sting? He's freed us from the fear of death and damnation and the grave. He's overcome all of that. And as soon as we move into that relationship with him, our eternal life has already started. And guess what? Death is nothing more than basically a promotion out of this temporal body that's decaying because of sin that entered into the physical realm. Hallelujah, amen. Therefore, we don't have to worry about dying. We don't have to be fearful of it at all. And it doesn't matter if you're 15, 55, or 105. You don't have to be fear fearful of it at all. Uh, so let's go on. Verse 4 says, I have glorified you or esteemed you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you've given me that I should do. Well, isn't that amazing? Has he died, buried, and rose again yet? Right here he says he's already done it. He's already accomplished the work. Why would he say that? <clears throat> Not really a trick question. Jesus is God and he's taken on flesh. And while he has on flesh, he's now limited by time and space. But he has always existed. And he acts, and he just, and because he is God, he's, he knows the future and everything else. He knows what's going on. He's, what he's saying is, I've already, I've done everything. The only thing now is for them to do what they're about to do to me. My work is done. What was the work? To glorify the Father and to make him known. That's what he's about to tell us here. <clears throat> That's what he did. Because he did that and claimed who he was, now everybody hates him and especially Satan and his minions. And so everything is now spun into, in, in, into action and he's going to die on the cross and there's no changing that because he's in control of everything. And so he says, uh, I've, I've, done, I've done what you told me to do. Uh, I've accomplished the work that you've given me. You've told me to do this and I did it. Verse 5, and now esteem me with yourself, Father, with the esteem which I had with you before the world was. Do you remember a few weeks back when we covered this, we talked about the deity of Christ, that there are people that don't believe that Jesus really is one with the Father or that he's really God in the flesh. And we spent a lot of time talking about that. But some of that came from this verse here in verse 5, because now he's saying, what I want, Father, is now I want you to give me the glory that I had with you before, technically, Jesus created everything. 
So he's saying, I want the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world, before the creation of the world that he had in eternity past. So before God created anything, watch this, including the angels, including the beings in the unseen realm, there was Jesus. And he says, that's the glory that I want back. Why would he ask that he wanted it back? Because he limited himself when he took on flesh. So he's saying, so when all this is done, I'm praying, Father, that you're going to restore me back to what you told me was going to happen all along. Is God going to honor that prayer? Well, of course he is. Then look what he says here in verse 6. This one's fascinating. I have revealed your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have guarded your word. He says, I have revealed your name to them. Question, do you think the apostles at the time of Christ knew what the name of God was before Jesus showed up? You can go ahead and shake your head. It's not really a trick question, but of course they did. Did they have the Bible? So I've told you all this before. I'll say it again. The name of God is in your Bible 6,827 times. Those aren't references to his name. His name, yod Hey vav Hey, and I think the evidence is overwhelming, uh, actually solid uh, hermeneutical evidence that the correct way to pronounce it would be Yahovah. But that doesn't really even really matter. It's these four Hebrew letters, yod Hey vav Hey. these four consonant letters uh, in Hebrew, yod Hey vav Hey. It's in there 7,000 times. They knew that. <laughs> uh, they would read it, and they knew that. You and I didn't know it because we've been told that the name is Lord and God and all that other stuff, but it's not. Um, and we've, we've been over all that. But here's what I want you to see. I want to read you something. I took this uh, quote. I'm just going to read this note straight out of the Jewish New Testament commentary. And this comment about, I made your name known, this signifies that in his own person, Yeshua, revealed more directly than ever before God's authority, power, and character. A literalistic understanding of the phrase, I made your name known, watch this, became the theme of a scurrilous or scandalous anti-gospel theory um, in the 6th century. And this theory was that Yeshua uh, committed that the offense that Yeshua did that actually ended up causing him to be murdered was that... uh, gave him the death penalty for blasphemy was the unauthorized use of the 72-letter, I'm not going to get into that, name of God to perform magic. Now, before you think that's 
really bizarre. There were people already doing that. Um, you, you, have you ever seen uh, an illegitimate faith healer or heard of that? I mean, let's just, okay, even in the church that there are people that are going to, if you do this and, you know, throw your money down here or, or whatever it is, you know, and then you're going to get healed and, and then all, with all this energy and they do all their hallelujahs and jumping and sweating and screaming and whatever, whatever it is, um, so that, you know, people would get healed. Well, folks, that's not a 20th century heresy twisting of Scripture. That's been going on since before the time of Christ. Calling on the name of God for things to happen, okay? Uh, trying to mimic, quote-unquote, the prophets that would do miracles in the name of God. Well, there were people saying, and they take it from this verse where Yeshua said, I made your name known. Now, you have to keep in mind, though, that this theory came up when? In the 6th century. Over 500 years after the time of Christ, people started to come up with this idea um, that, you know what earned Jesus the death penalty for blasphemy? Was he revealed this secret name of God, that if you spoke this name of God and called upon the power of this mighty God, then these miracles would happen. The reason I'm bringing that up is because as important as it is to understand that God has a name, and his name is yod heh vav -Hey. You can say Yahweh if you want, or Yahovah. You can say Jehovah, but I don't even get that one because there's not a J sound in Hebrew, but, but whatever. I want you to understand, though, the, the importance isn't on the correct pronunciation of his name. The importance is at least knowing that he has one. But that is not what Jesus is talking about here. Obviously, Right? Because he said, I made your name known to them. So what in the world could he possibly be talking about? Uh, folks, this is a direct fulfillment, and you write, need to write this down, out of Psalm 22. So put that down there on your notes somewhere. Psalm 22, actually the whole psalm is a messianic psalm. It's a messianic prophecy. Um, and in there, in Psalm 22, watch this, verse 22. That should be easy to remember. 22, 22, it says this. I make your name known to my brothers in the midst of the assembly. I praise you. What is Yeshua doing right here? Because he's praying this right in front of them. He just got through giving us, you know, um, I'm saying these things to you, and this is in, Chapter 16, that you might have peace in the world, you're going to have pressure or tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Yeshua, then he says these things, he lift up his eyes in heaven, and, says, and then he just goes right into this prayer, talking about bringing glory and honor to the Father, and that he's making his, God's name known to these people. Well, what does that mean? It means a lot more than just how to pronounce his name. Folks, there's people today, there's a movement called the Sacred Name Movement. Have you ever heard of that? It's a, that's, a, that's a name for a movement. 
And they're basically saying that you need to say the name of God you need to, and you need to say it right. And if you don't say it right, well, then you're just, you're out of sync and you're, you're, you're really messed up. And they will fight over this. Um, I am not saying that that's what's so important. What I'm trying to tell you is that according to the name that God revealed to Moses when he said, I, I didn't reveal my name to my people before, but now I am. And he says that I, I am that I am in English. And in the Hebrew, it's asher, ayeh, asher, ayeh, which means I will be that which I will be. We've been over that stuff here many times. It's these verbs that says, I exist, and therefore, because I exist, the possibility of anything else existing is, is true because I'm here. I'm the spark. I'm the energy. I'm the source of everything else. When everybody wants to know what was the beginning of whatever, it was God. To really mess your head up, because philosophers have tried to do this. Some of them have literally lost their minds. What would have been before God? And if God was there, what was the beginning of God? And so if you and I could have had the opportunity to be there with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there would not be anything there but us and the three dudes, or if there was a hundred or whatever. Yeah, we <laughs> Okay, uh, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if you could decide, because there wasn't time, you wouldn't know what that was, that you would close your eyes and travel as far as you wanted in that direction until you got tired of going. And we'll call it a million years. We don't know what a year is because there's not a sun, moon, or stars or whatever. We don't know what time is, but we're going to go that way. And, when you, and you wouldn't have to worry about hitting anything or tripping anything because there's not anything, right? So all of a sudden, after a million years, you decide, okay, I'm going to stop. And you open up your eyes, and you're going to be staring at God. <laughs> um, he's everywhere, and he has always been. And what he was saying to Moses was that I exist, and now what I'm going to do is I'm going to reveal those verbs to my people through the process of delivering them, and they're going to see my power, my glory, my honor, um, my love, grace, mercy. They're also going to see my justice. They're going to see who I am, and I'm going to reveal the great I am through these actions, through these events. So Jesus is saying here, through the things I've done, it's been a physical revelation of the God made, the Word of God made flesh, that you are, I am, we are the ayah, asher, ayah, that I am that I am, that I exist, and because I exist, everything else can exist. Is that starting to resonate? So it's not so much he revealed how to pronounce their, his name. No. Lunacy. <laughs> the people that come up with some of this stuff. Um, he says, I have revealed your name to them whom you gave me out of the world, they were yours and you gave them to me. And then look at this. And they have guarded your word. They've kept it. 
Now, here's what I want you to see. Throughout his, this prayer of Yeshua, we should notice the number of times he mentions the name of Yahovah, the name of God, and the word of God. It's amazing. There, this, this theme throughout this whole prayer is, revolves around this. Glorifying God, the name of God, and the word of God, and that all of this is happening so that the word of God would be fulfilled and all of that is happening, and I'm praying that you get wrapped up in this and understand that this and your connection to it is your eternal life. Everything else are just details. Heaven, that's just a detail. Eternal... Your eternal life is with him even if he doesn't create a new heaven and new earth. But he's going to create a new heaven and earth. Why? Because he's going to give us physical bodies and it's just part of his grand plan. Uh, it is the major theme of his prayer connected to the protection and empowerment of his followers and the ones that come after them due to their testimony, meaning even you and I. That is so cool. And it says that what happened was he shared this with these apostles and they, they not only said, yeah, I believe that. Have you ever believed something and then later decided that you didn't believe it? Uh, I've got truths in Scripture that I used to believe that now I go, man, what an idiot, you know, because uh, God has revealed so many things to me. That's not what he's saying, that they, they simply believed in what he said. It says that they kept it or guarded it, meaning they, they decided, you know what? This is the word of God, literally, whether I believe it or understand it or not. There's a huge difference in you saying you and I saying, I'd have to hold this up. If you and I saying that we believe that this is the very word of God, whether you and I understand it or not, and that God will be glorified through this, and I will fight to make sure people don't distort this any more than they already are. I don't have to understand all of it. I don't have to defend the word of God. It doesn't need defending. Because it is the Word of God. And it doesn't depend on my understanding it whether it's valid or not. Wow, see, that's the part that's huge. People want you to validate the Word of God, and if you can validate these points, if you can validate that point, if you can solve this confusing thing for me, then I will accept it. No, what you're saying is that then you will decide you're going to believe it for now. But you're still not, you, in other words, your whole questioning says that you really don't believe it's the word of God. Therefore, there's your problem. You need this text or whatever to be proven to you. I tell you all the time, I'm a simple guy. I, I have to keep things simple. If there is a God, I'm assuming that we all here believe there really is a God. If there is a God and he really did create the world, and he really did send his son to die on a cross for all that stuff. I'm just simple-minded to actually believe that he's big enough to write a book. Uh, if he can do all of that, 
if he can just speak and spin everything into existence, I think he could probably write a book. And I think he could probably do it, do it without messing it up. I think he's even big enough to work around the humans that try to distort it. And that when it all pans out, he's going to say, now here is exactly what I said, and here's exactly what happened, and I told you there's not another God like me. I said it would happen this way, and that's the way it happened. Now you guys can read that for the rest of eternity and just keep glorifying me every day you get up because I'm God. (laughs) I'm just simple enough to believe that he can write a book. I don't need people to prove to me that the Bible is true. I love it when I see documentaries that prove that the Bible really is true. I think that's really cool, but I don't need it. The God that I serve is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Father in heaven who sent his son Jesus, died on the cross, rose on the third day, ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's big enough to write a book. And I believe all that stuff from the book. And then I also believe it because he moved miraculously in my own life, revealed himself to me, cleansed me and forgave me of my sin. Hallelujah. So it says here that they guarded this word. So very cool. And it says, now they've come to know that all you gave to me is from you. So they've guarded his word. They, in other words, they made it authoritative in their lives. They said, it really is true. And Jesus really is the Messiah. And then look at verse eight. It says, because these words you gave to me, I have given to them. This is why they're believing him. Everything that the father said would happen, Yeshua lived it out and proved it to them that he really was the, from the father. And he is what? The prophet. And the prophecy in the Old Testament was, I'm going to send a prophet like Moses. I'm going to put all my words in him, and he's going to speak these words to you. And anybody that doesn't receive his words, I will require it of him. Wow. And so this is exactly what Jesus is saying. You gave me your words. I gave it to them. They've guarded your words. And because of all that, they actually believe that I came from you. And it continues, and he says, and they have received them, and they truly know that I came forth from you, and they believe that you sent me. That's really cool. Verse 9 says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world. You might want to underline that. It says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you gave me, because they're yours. And he continues on with this, all are mine and all mine are yours and yours are mine and I have been glorified in them. But right there he says, he's not praying for the world. Now, a lot of people will get all upset about that. Once again, I don't have to understand the difference between predestination and election and and, uh, free will. I know they're both there. It's in Scripture that you and I have a free will. It talks about us being predestined and foreknown by God. It also talks about that the only faith we have is the faith that God gave us, and that's what gave us the strength to even exercise our faith to ask Jesus to save us. And right here, Jesus said, I've given these 
words to the ones you've given me, and I'm praying for them, and I'm not praying for the world. Why would he pray for people that aren't his? Pretty simple question. I know it's complicated. Everybody goes, well, now, wait a minute. God's not willing that any should perish. Well, that's true. Um, He doesn't want anybody to perish. But, folks, he's decided that he's going to save some of us. And salvation's available for anybody. But, folks, the only way we can come to him is by his grace and mercy and coming after us. So instead of us being proud, we ought to be extremely humble and grateful. And understand right here that Jesus is not being evil, mean, and nasty by saying, you know what, I ain't even praying for the world right here. I'm praying for some specific people. I'm praying for these and those that follow. He's going to tell us that here in just a second. He says, I I pray for them. I don't pray for the world, but for those whom you gave me, because they're yours, all all are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I've been esteemed in them. Verse 11 And I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, set apart, or Holy Father, watch this, guard them hmm, in your name. Are y'all reading that? Just want to make sure you're looking at it in black and white. Guard them, which means protect them or keep them in your name. Okay, before I continue to read, what would that name be? Yahovah, right? The name of the Father. He says, guard them in your name, hmm, which you have given me. (laughs) For those that say that Jesus isn't really God in the flesh, they have a hard time explaining the very words of Jesus himself. Um, Here he's saying... God, Father, I want you to guard them in this name, which means you exist, therefore anything else has the possibility of of existing. And that's the name I want you to guard them in, protect them in, and that is the name that you also gave to me. So we need to understand that the separation point between God the Father and God the Son is not perceptible. That's why he's constantly saying, I'm in the Father, the Father is in me, back and forth. We are one and the same, yet we're separate. I know you can't wrap your brain around that, but it's just a fact. And this is really important because this is what he's praying. Watch this, for you and I. Now, you have to go back. Jesus explained what eternal life was. What is eternal life? Knowing God the Father and God the Son. But that knowledge isn't intellectual knowledge. It's intimate knowledge. The word know in there is the same word in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, in Genesis, where it says, and Adam knew his wife Eve. In the terms of a sexual relation that would birth offspring. 
Now, he's not saying that he's having sex with us, okay? That's not what it's saying. But it's talking about this intimate, personal, inseparable relationship, not just intellectual. So he's praying, God, I want to have the same glory I had with you before the foundation of the earth. I want them to understand that there's no separation between the two of us. In other words, I'm praying to you, but God, you've also given me the name, which means I am. I know I'm getting way ahead of myself, but he's about to be arrested. You ever notice that? We're gonna, we'll read it in a little bit, not tonight. You ever notice what happened when they came to arrest him? He said, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. You know, remember that story? And Jesus goes, I am. They fall on the ground like dead men. <laughs> they have to get back up. And he goes, so who are you looking for? Can you imagine those soldiers going, I don't know if I want to say it again. My gosh, what was that that just knocked me down? And it wasn't one or two of them, all of them. It wasn't that he even said it with force. It was just like, I am that I am. Boom. The power of that knocks him to the ground. He's saying there is no separation between me and the Father. Are you catching this? Folks, salvation, that's what he's praying for you and I, that we would understand that, that that's the kind of love the Father has for you and for me. That kind of intimate, inseparable relationship. That's why I do not believe you can get saved and lose your salvation. How is that possible for you to be birthed, adopted, brought into this intimate, personal relationship with the creator of the universe, and then because of something you could say or do cause you to lose that relationship? I think there are a lot of people that think they're saved that aren't because they might even be good Christians. They might be good Catholics, Methodists, Protestants, whatever. They, they may have their own style. We're going to do it at home because everybody else is doing it wrong. And Man, we really love God or whatever. And they're really not because they're really seeking something other than a relationship with the King of Kings. Whatever that is, whether it's church status, better than thou, feel good about themselves, whatever. There are times, and I'm not, I'm not just dreaming that up. Jesus himself has already said it. There's going to be many on that day that are going to say, Lord, Lord, we did great mighty things in your name. He says, depart from me, those of you who work in iniquity. I don't know who you are. Well, those are Christians, church workers, evangelists. Whatever. Blue-haired ladies have been playing on that pipe organ for 40 years. I'm not, and I'm not trying to belittle that. I'm, people that sang in the choir forever. People that, you know, were ushers. Pastors. People that warmed that pew. Got their name on the back of it. A little sign. I gave $500 so we could buy this pew and we built this building. What are you telling me I'm not getting in? People do it all the time. 
Come to church, do this, do that. Why? So that you can get this out of it. Watch this. Come to church so that you'll have a better family life. Can you? Sure you can. You can even have a pretty good family life if you went fishing every night with your family and your kids. Seriously. Throw that dumb phone in the lake and go fishing. You'll have a pretty good family life. Probably talk a lot more. Catch some food. Learn how to cook it. You know, have a good time. Um, We should be here because we love God and we want to love him better and we want to tell other people, I'm walking with the king of the universe. Are you kidding me? He took this and said, I forgave you. If he can do this with this, he can do it with you. And it's the ultimate, if you want, uh, adrenaline rush, knowledge rush, power rush, what, whatever. It's like, <clears throat> so the meaning of the whole universe, where we came from, I'm walking with that. Yeah. How many movies have revolved around that whole concept of people wanting to understand where, we're, where we came from and be one with the universe and all that other fun stuff? Well, God says, I'm that thing you're looking for and you can walk with me. Um, <clears throat> so he says, um, he wants us to be guarded in his name so that they might be one as we are. Uh, I'm telling you, there's no way I can explain it. You and I are either going to have to search for that and want that and long for that, or we're just simply not going to get it. Um, Folks, this is not a uh, metaphor. He's not saying, Father, you know what I want? I want the church to be able to get along and stop fighting so that people will know that I'm really the Christ. Does he want that? Well, of course he does. He, d- division in the body is an abomination to God. That's from Scripture. What's he really saying here? I want them to start to comprehend, but more importantly, experience the oneness that I have with you. Do you understand how huge that is and transformational that is, if we could start to grasp that instead of, well, you know, I'm just trying to make it through life. I'm going to go to church one more time. I'm going to listen to Paul preach for an hour, hour and a half, whatever. You know, I'm shooting spit wads at him, telling him to hush up or, or, or whatever. Uh, you know, I'm going to do my thing. And then, you know, I, I hope I can make it into heaven and everything will be fine when I get there. No, we have eternal life and we have it now. Um, Look in verse 12. He says, when I was with them in the world, I was guarding them in your name, which you have given me. There he says it again. Remember what we've said before? If you see something repeated in Scripture to pay attention. Now, this is Jesus repeating it. His breath hasn't even gotten cold yet. And he's saying that you've given me this name and I was guarding them in the name that you gave me. And I watched over them and not one of them perished except for the son of destruction. Look at this. 
that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Even God allowed all that to happen for one reason, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. And why is that so important? Because God said, this is my word, this is what I've declared, this is what's gonna happen, and nothing's gonna stop me. And that's why that is so important. Um, Folks, this is taken, you might want to just jot some of these down, some of these references. I'm not going to read them all tonight. Uh, but Psalm uh, 41.10, uh, also Psalm 55, 13 through 16. Um, that's Psalm 55, 13 through 16, and Psalm uh, 109, <clears throat> uh, 8 through 9. Um, there's also a correlation there between Judas Iscariot and Jesus uh, found with uh, King David. This is in, uh, you write this one down, 2 Samuel 16, 14 through 17. <clears throat> 2 Samuel 16, 14 through 17. But what these Psalms say, uh, it says things like, uh, let his house be in ruins and he, his name be... Uh, obliterated and all this other kind of stuff. And it also says uh, something about that, uh, that he should be replaced. Well, in Acts chapter 1, the, the apostles quote that. Um, see if I can pull that back up. It's in Acts 1.20. My computer catch up. It says, for it has been written in the book of the Psalms, and now it's going to give two quotes. Let his dwelling lie in waste and let no one live in it. And then the next quote, let another take his office. And it's based off of those Psalms that the apostles are already figuring out are dealing with the Messiah and when he comes and all these things that were happening, they were saying, so what we need to do is we need to replace Judas. And they came up with two men, Mattathias being one of them. And what do they do? They cast lots for them, which is like throwing the dice. And the lot fell to Mattathias. And so he was numbered as one of the 12 apostles. Only problem is you never hear his name again. But what you do hear a lot about is this guy named Shaul who becomes Paul. Um, so the apostles weren't any different than us. We read something we're like, okay, we need to fix this for God. <laughs> oh, my, my, my. But what I want you to see is that uh, it, this was all important so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. So then he goes on and he says, and now I come to you and I speak these words in the world that they may have that they have my joy completed in them i have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world even as i am not of the world i do not pray that you should take them out of the world but that you keep them or guard them from the wicked one so now what he's and you have to remember now the apostles are standing there watching this jesus is teaching them and then all of a sudden, he's go, he goes into this rapturous discourse with his father. All these other times we see where he goes off at night, and he's gone all night, and he's praying. He goes off by himself praying. He's right there teaching them, and all of a sudden, he just starts praying to the father right in front of them. 
and even says, basically, I'm saying these words right in front of them while I'm in the world with them, even though I'm not really in the world anymore. What would he really be saying? I am not subject to the world's authority. I'm physically here now for another day or so, uh, if you count in three days, four days, if you count that time frame, and then by the time he dies and he's in the belly of the earth for three days. But he's saying, I'm not really, I'm not in this now. It's, it, this thing, it's done. There's, there's no stopping this, it's done. But I'm saying this now so that they uh, would be encouraged. And I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Who would that be? Hasatan, Satan. Um, and it's in verse 16, it says, they are not of the world as I am not of the world. But they're in the world, right? Haven't we heard that before in one of the, apostles, the, the, the letters uh, that we're to be in the world but not a part of the world? We're not to love the world? Um, but that you keep them. I'm sorry, verse 16. They are not of the world even as I'm not of the world. Set them apart in your truth. <laughs> Once again, just keep reading, right? And what does it say? Your word is truth. This goes back to our understanding or guarding this as the word of God, whether we understand it or not. You see, truth isn't your truth, my truth, or what we understand to be true. That's what we understand to be a reality. And that could be my reality and your reality or my understanding of a circumstance. But Jesus here says, I want you to sanctify them or separate them or protect them uh, to set them apart, sanctify, make them holy in truth. And he says, and what is that? It's the word of God. He says, your word is truth. <clears throat> Jot this down, Psalm 119, 160. This is not the only one, but it does sum it up. I guess you'd say pun intended. Uh, Psalm 119, 160. It says, the sum of your word is truth, and all your righteous right rulings are forever. Your game plan for success is this book. And success is not determined by people in the room, money in your bank, years on your driver's license. Success is measured by the, the depth of the intimacy of your relationship with the creator of the universe. That's the level of success. And where are we going to learn that if we're not reading the word of God? And you know what is so sad? Very, very, very few people that attend any church actually read and study their Bible. The number is so minuscule, it's scary. Even most pastors don't really study it or read it for what it can mean to them. Typically, we'll find ourselves studying it to preach a sermon. Oh, that'll preach. Woohoo. 
It's hard not to do that when you're a pastor. When your job is to read the Word of God and teach on the Word of God. But even I can miss the boat if I'm studying it and reading it just to do some teaching, razzle-dazzle people, if I'm not reading it so that it can change me. Then I become just a clanging symbol. And he says, you know, that he's, uh, he's not praying that they be taken out of the world. And he just got to tell them that we're going to have tribulation in the world. And so Jesus says, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world. This just, you know, crossed my mind. Maybe I'm supposed to say it. Maybe I'm not. But <clears throat> now, who's pray- who just prayed that? No trick question. Who prayed it? So Jesus prayed this, and he's praying to who? God the Father. And is God the Father going to honor that prayer? Well, then how do you explain the pre-trib rapture theory? You can't. And I know that rocks some people's boats, but folks... um, You have to believe that I guess Jesus is wrong on this because he says, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. He doesn't say, you know, except for that, you know, that one time period, you know, you can go ahead and, you know, zap them out of the world, you know, during all that chaos, you know, so they won't have to go through that. But everybody else, well, you know, I I guess they're tough luck. You were born at the wrong time. (laughs) Really? Uh, he says, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but you came from the evil one. Um, so, and he says, you know, that um, in verse 18, he says, you sent me into the world, and so also I'm sending them into the world. So he's now saying, I'm going to send you into the world. Send us in the world to do what? To tell the story. And for them, I set myself apart so that they too might be set apart in truth. So he did this so that we could be set apart in truth. Wow. How are we going to be set apart in truth when we don't know what the truth is? Because we're not reading it. We don't want a show of hands of how many hours we burn on social media. Facebook, Instagram, whatever sitting there scrolling. And some of the posts say, stop scrolling and read this (laughs) because they know everybody's just sitting there doing this, right? They're just burning all this time just on social media. How many hours have we burned? I'm bad at this. How many hours have we burned watching movies and watching movies we've already seen twice? We're in the kitchen preparing dinner and the movie's on and we're quoting the lines because we've seen it so many times. But we're going to go down there and sit there and watch it (laughs) like a zombie. We'll watch all this stuff and do all these things instead of doing the very most important thing we could be doing, and that's getting the Word of God in us. And I don't know about you. Some of you might have a photographic memory. I don't. I've got to read it about a million times before I start to remember what page I'm on. I knew guys in school that had photographic memories and it made me want to just slap them silly 
made me so furious. He'd read something, go in there and take a test and just pass it. I'm the kind of guy that I have to read something and I had to do this to it, showing it to you. I had to highlight it. I love digital stuff now because I can really highlight it and put post-it notes in there. But when I was in school, it was before you could do all this, and I'm having to highlight the book I'm reading. I'd have to make notes, and then I would take all my highlights and my notes, and I would make me a study sheet to try to read that and study that so that I could remember it so I'd have a chance to pass the test. Can anybody else relate? You don't have to raise your hand and admit that. Uh, I struggled with it. But now, because of technology, I can not only read it and read it and read it and read it, but I can also listen to it over and over and over and over and over again. Watch this, for free. It costs you a penny. Download it on your phone and just listen to it over and over and over again. And I can't tell you how many times I'm listening to like the book of John. I don't know how many times I've listened to it while we're studying this. How many times I've gone over a... uh, a book, and I'm listening to it, and all of a sudden I'll stop and go, what, what, what? Back up, back up, back up. What, what, what was that? I didn't hear that the other 45 times I listened to this. And God will do that, and he'll show you things. And folks, we just got to get the word of God in us so that we can understand some of this stuff. He gets to verse 21, he says, so that they all might be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so that they too might be one in us. Oh my goodness. <sighs> I took this note, let me get down to the bottom of this. It's called Under the Vine. Um, it's a messianic thought through the Hebrew uh, calendar. And I just put the whole thing on here because uh, I just thought it was important. That they, they may all be one just as you, Father, are united with me and I with you. One thing I've discovered in my life with God, they're using the word Hashem, uh, is that it is always subject to change. Changes are bound to be constant, especially when we endeavor to follow Him. Change is an unchangeable fact. It is inevitable because He doesn't change. Because He doesn't change, we're the ones who have to do the moving and the changing in order to adapt to His unchangeable continuity. I know that can get confusing, but it's really not. One time a man complained that he didn't feel as close to God as he used to until his friend asked him who moved. Broken friendships and marriages work much the same way. We must sometimes ask ourselves who moved or who changed their priorities. God doesn't. So when we feel further from Him than we used to, we must have changed things somehow. The creator of all things expressed his unchangeable nature when he gave his name to Moses on Mount Sinai and he introduced himself as Ayah, Asher, Ayah, roughly translated, I will be that which I will be, meaning I, God, do not change. I am constant. I exist. Many people have fallen into the trap that the God of the Old Testament is different than the one of the apostolic scriptures or the New Testament. Although understanding of God's name as introduced to Moses on Mount claims the exact opposite. A solid grasp on God's unchanging nature spares us from falling into errant theology. God doesn't change. 
Yeshua himself directly disclaimed this theology of being different from the Father. He claims total unity of concepts with the Father when he says, so that they may be one just as we are. That was taken right there out of uh, John 17, 11, and 21. Jesus teaches us here that because he is on the same page with the Father, if we go on the same page with him, we will also be on the same page with the Father. Wow. This reflects the standard Jewish Hasidic theology of approaching God through your spiritual mentor. God doesn't change. He remains the same from creation until today. From the beginning, His standards of mercy, grace-giving, patience, goodness, compassion, and forgiveness have been the core of His being. Now, and just as it was in the past, His people have always been able to rely on these attributes in order to come in His presence. But so are the rest of His name's attributes unchangeable, truth, justice, and retribution. May we never forget, ne- may we never forget it as we, as we pray to him who never changes. So he's saying <clears throat> that this aspect of it is, I want them to be one, Father, as you are in me, so that they too may also be one in us. Are you seeing this re- repetitive concept here in this prayer. He's trying to wrap it five different directions saying, this is what I desire. That You're going to send them out in the power of and the, and the protection of your name, which means that you exist and you do not change ever. And I don't change. And I want them to experience that oneness with us. And know that that oneness with us is eternal life that everyone seems to be looking for. But it's only found in this relationship with the one that created them. And the only way to really do that is to be engulfed in your word because your word is truth and you're going to be set apart and sanctified in truth and protected by the very name of the one who created you in order that you could be one with the Father. And watch this, through that knowledge and that lifestyle, then bring glory and honor to his name. You can't can't get the cart in front of the horse. You, You can't. It stems from the relationship with the Father, not your religion and not your church. Not our superior knowledge of the scriptures. It comes from an intense uh, relational aspect with the creator of the universe. Now, um, let me go ahead and go to uh, verse 23 and close with this because this, it took a while. He says, I and them, you and me, so that they may be perfected into one. Look at this. So that the, so that the world knows that you have sent me and, and have loved them as you loved me. So here he's explaining it and getting it down into brass tacks. Father, you sent me so that I would give you, them your word, and they've received it and understand that you are the one true God and that you sent me. Okay. 
die on the cross, purchase their salvation. Now, Father, I want you to protect them from the evil one because now what needs to happen is that they would experience this oneness with us and experience that power and experience eternal life now so that through that process, the world would know that I really am your son and you really are God. It flows out of that, folks. Nothing else. And he says, this is what I want so that the world will know that Yehovah is the one true God and Jesus is the one Messiah. Does the world believe that right now? Oh, yeah, no, big no. As a matter of fact, the growing trend within the church, you, it, mark my words on this. The growing trend within the church today is to change the word of God that you have to fit culture. The onslaught that is coming, I believe, will revolve around homosexuality and what they're going to call social justice. And that if I preach what the Word of God actually says about sexual purity, whether it's homosexual or not, but sexual purity and lying and cheating and all that other stuff that's in the Scriptures that says you and I aren't supposed to be doing it, will become hate speech. So everybody's changing this book, even within the church, why would that happen? Because way too many people in the church want church, want what we believe is coming and what we're going to get on the other side by me being a nice person, obviously defined by my definition. And anybody that's outside of that, wrong. And so... That's what I desire. And if that's what I desire, then folks, this is just a book. If that's what I desire and that's what's motivating me, this is just a book like any other book. It, maybe it's a historical book. Maybe it's not. Maybe Moses wrote it. Maybe he didn't. Maybe the Red Sea really happened. Maybe it didn't. Really doesn't matter. It's all philosophical after all, anyhow. And so we all just want to be better people. We want to get along. We want to have better marriages. We want to have better love partners. We want to get along. We want it to be all rosy. And those that don't want to get along, well, we'll just get rid of them because we want utopia. And utopia is what we determine what utopia is. I know that sounds insane because it is insane, but that's the mindset of the people today. Well, then you're not trying to glorify God and you don't think he can write a book. And that's not what you're really after to glorify him. Therefore, it's okay to change this. And it's coming. And the reason the world doesn't believe that Jesus really is the one true Messiah. He's only one path. That's why you see so many coexist bumper stickers. He's only one of many paths to this, I don't know, supernatural God thing, cosmos, energy force, may the force be with you stuff. Uh, that mindset has been within our ranks for centuries. 
And that's why the world doesn't believe because they haven't truly seen the real power of God flowing through imperfect people falling in love with their creator and not caring about anything else. They haven't really seen it. Maybe we should work on that. Maybe we should work on it. Um, We should focus on trying to glorify him, fall in love with him, because this is eternal life. Folks come and accept Jesus for a ton of different reasons. A lot of them are, what's he going to fix for me? You know what God wants? Total surrender and for us to fall in love with him. Because this is eternal life, that you may know God the Father and Yeshua the Messiah whom he sent intimately. No matter where you are, whether it's walking on this earth or floating on a cloud playing a harp or walking on streets of gold or floating in a nothingness sky, you'd be happy because you're there with God. Pray with me, will you? Heavenly Father, do love you very much, yet our love is frail and fragile. And Lord, I pray that you'd forgive us when we get off track and we forget what eternal life really is. And we start looking for things and trinkets and um, certain types of blessings and stuff. And Lord, we all do it. I do it. Lord, I pray that you forgive me when, I'm, when I act like that. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a church that just loves you, loves each other. Um, Lord, that we would be humble and patient and kind and forgiving. And that, Lord, we would see the good in each other instead of seeing the, the warts and the bad. And that, Lord, we would be joyful at even seeing one another and look for ways to encourage one another. And that, Lord, we would fall so deeply in love with you that when a stranger would walk through this door, they would sense your presence, your love, grace, and mercy. They would be overpowered by your presence here and your love and forgiveness. Lord, help us to be a fellowship of light in dark times. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to thank you for being here.